Hello and welcome to the latest edition of Three Peas in a Pod. I'm Paul Jarvis, editor of Partnerships Bulletin and P3 Bulletin, and I'm joined by my deputy, Jonathan Davis. Hi, Paul. And in this slightly different episode, we're going to dig into one single issue, which is the report into behaviours in PFI contracts, which was exclusively revealed by Partnerships Bulletin earlier this week. And I'm going to ask some questions about where the industry goes from here. So the long-awaited report into behaviours in PFI contracts. Just to recap what this report is all about, it was launched in November last year, led by two well-known long-standing members of the PFI community, in Barry White, former head of Scottish Futures Trust, among other things, and Andrew Fraser, who had a long career working as a lawyer on PFI deals. It was meant to be an independent report on the status of behaviours, relationships and disputes in PFI contracts. And it was to consider the merits of the recommendations put forward by law firm DLA Piper in its Project Autumn report, which had raised a number of concerns around increasingly antagonistic behaviour in the way that contracts were being managed. So if we start by uh, having a little look into what the uh, the outcomes of this report were, I think maybe to start off with to say it's a slightly odd report in some ways in that there were no terms of reference published originally other than those that I just mentioned really and that which were you know contained in the press release as well that announcing the review so in that sense it's a bit sort of unusual there's no kind of it doesn't feel as perhaps official as some reports you get from government and I think in some ways that's been deliberate by the IPA because they don't want to have their kind of fingerprints all over this as an unofficial IPA report. They were very keen to point out it was a an independent production. It was a really interesting read on the whole because it did come from a different angle and a fair amount of it was context setting. So you had the arguments of both the private side and also the public side and the reasons behind those and to see where perhaps they were well, talking about the same issue but from completely different angles and for instance, on the aggressive behaviour that both sides witness and both sides would say that they have been victims of, there are completely different angles that they come from. For instance, the public sector say that they've tried every other method of trying to get through to the private sector and that this is a last resort, whereas the private sector say this is a complete sea change from how these contracts have been managed. So to kind of set the context of this, I thought was really important for any conversation to go forward, particularly as when this topic does come up at conferences and such, it is largely a conversation ran by the private sector. So to have this, an independent report that can cut through that and give a lay of the land, I think is really important into pushing the conversation forward. But would you say is what you expected to come out of it, Paul? I think... To a certain extent, yes. And I think there was some concern, I know, talking to some people in the industry prior to it coming out. And we should say as well, it hasn't been officially published and won't be until I think later this month. But certainly the the kind of the fear originally was that this would be a report that says, on the one hand, the public sector have been doing X. On the other hand, the private sector have been doing Y. And I think that is how it's sort of come out as well. And I think a lot of concerns that led into the creation of the idea of this report being established were around those antagonistic behaviours that you mentioned and around the public sector you know, suddenly switching, if you like, from a very light touch 
review process, largely accepting the private sector's view on everything every year, just getting a report and just sort of flicking through saying, yeah, that looks reasonable, to a point where the public sector is very quickly saying, there are all these things that aren't right, and we're going to hit you with deductions for them. We're not going to give you any kind of leeway into remedying that. We just we have seen these problems. We assume that they're historical. Some of them will be. Some of them may be less historical. And we're going to start hitting you with deductions immediately. And I think the report does mention and sort of recommend that communication is probably something that needs to happen. I definitely think that's that's a truism that in a lot of these cases, the sudden switch or flip in relationships and the sudden move to this more aggressive contract management catches people by surprise and causes a lot of the difficulties that we've seen some of these contracts get into. Yeah, totally. But I think it's important to note that in the report, it does say that there's a number of different reasons that could be behind that. And one of those that's often mentioned in the industry is these contingent fee consultants, which are spearheading that approach but there are other reasons as well like for instance like you said the light touch approach and changing that to being more involved particularly as expiry perhaps approaches and that method of working has resulted in expectations not being met for instance in terms of reporting and self-reporting on projects by the private sector all of a sudden, now the public sector are interested in that and it perhaps doesn't really align with their view of what should be happening. But for the private sector, they would argue something totally different is going on, saying that this was always the way and it's actually up to the public sector to monitor this. It's not a self-monitoring system. And it's very clear in trying to establish what is expectation and what is reality and trying to lay a bit of a foundation to then move forward because there are some problems which I think it lays out as being systemic issues for instance capacity is something that it gets brought up a few times in terms of staff retention and and expertise but there are other ones which seem like cultural issues which this report seems to be more aimed at targeting because there are some problems which will be much more harder to alleviate but when it is changing the approach to these disputes I think it does go quite in-depth into the different reasons for it and perhaps recommending some ways to try and break out of the mindset that some people are in. Yeah, absolutely. I think the top line really is, in terms of recommendations, is around this idea of a reset. And you bring all parties together and start from scratch to a certain extent around how you approach the contract and how you approach managing this asset almost, I guess, like an amnesty in some ways around leaving all your hang-ups and criticisms at the door and trying to actually focus on, right, this is the asset, this is how we want it managed, these are the problems, this is how we're going to come together and work it out, which sounds great. And I'm sure there are plenty in the industry who would agree with that as an approach. The problem is that, and the resets idea sort of talks about doing this before you get into a dispute position or an aggressive management position as well. I think the difficulty is that that doesn't necessarily help for those that are already in that place. It also is a bit difficult to see how you get into a mindset of a a reset if there is one party who is coming at this from a particular angle and wanting to get 
a certain thing out of it or not, as the case may be. And I think it's then difficult to just say, yeah, well, if you all get in a room together and, and behave quite nicely to get to each other, we'll get through this and, and, yeah. and fix it. Yeah, and just to lay out what the reset means, I've got the quote here. It says that a reset would provide the SPV in charge of the asset with the opportunity to deliver assured performance standards through a time window, and then the deduction system would be applied. But I think it's quite interesting to see how the shoe, the first mover is put onto the public sector in that case, and then it's on the private sector to get it into this state and yes a reset might provide that little bit of breathing space but if the culture's not changed at the end of the reset you just then have this crunch moment which I'm not sure how much either side would quite like to have approaching if you've got say six months to get your hospital in perfect order before someone's going to come in with a microscope but whether that breathing space would be a really useful moment of pause and help establish the relationship how much communication would be happening during that reset i think would be really vital yeah and i think you do see in these contracts where they do get into difficulties and heading towards dispute that you do get cases where there is that kind of window opportunity and where the deductions are suspended Mm. for a time so that they can be got into order and so a plan of action can be introduced i think what some in the private sector would say is the problem is that in a lot of cases, those deductions are kind of still being ratcheted up and being held so that when the time limit comes to an end, they're all there to, to be kind of applied, really. So actually, you're only delaying the cost hit coming down the line. So I think to a certain extent, then that's quite how far a reset goes to alleviating the problems. I don't know. Yeah. And that's one of the points which I thought comes down to that driver element what is actually driving these the attitudes that go that favor a dispute or lean into that dispute perhaps trying to gain an advantage and the report is quite clear that it's underperformance of the assets which is not something you usually associate with pfi assets generally the perception which we certainly hear and and seems to be around not talking about the reputation it has but the actual performance of the assets is that they produce strong assets that perform better than public sector ones. And the report kind of acknowledges that as well, doesn't it? I think yeah. it says that about 10% of all contracts have some sort of issue with them. And of that 10%, it's a, another 10% that, that yeah. are the ones that are kind of in, in dispute, yeah. which is actually really then you're getting down to a tiny minority of projects. Exactly. And it even goes further than that and says that of that one percent of projects that end up in a actual like third party dispute, most of those are in a particular sector, which it won't surprise listeners is involved in the health sector. But addressing those performance issues will go a very long way to helping to undercut where those disputes might arise from. So I think the reset is quite a good idea on that front. If it was taken in good faith and actually there was say six months or a year to alleviate that and goodwill which is the main theme of this report if that could be instated then i think it would be really effective but without addressing if there's not a carrot there kind of has to be a stick and i think in the recommendations that are put forward 
what's going to actually drive forward that change and what's going to really make people want to do things differently i'm not totally clear on that yet and and who would enforce it i think that's an area which i'm not saying you can't expect one report to do everything but we know that from other recommendations and like the DLA report, there was a big emphasis on kind of accountability in these disputes and trying to get to the bottom of it. And I think that is somewhere where everybody on in the industry would welcome that. It says there was broad consensus on, say, opening up reports on who on previous disputes that would be anonymized to help create those kind of informal boundaries of problem solving so then other people wouldn't have to go to court if they knew that there was some vague more nebulous spirit of the game kind of rules yeah and just to go back to you you referencing obviously the health sector which again the report does and we've talked about plenty of times on podcasts and in articles about how these issues are largely based in the health sector they're largely based around the problems with large acute pfi hospitals and I think, yeah, the issue with that is that, you know, a lot of the time it's down to, and this report, as as you kind of alluded to, a lot of the kind of recommendations come down to the parties being willing to get into a room together and negotiate and uh, have that kind of sense of goodwill. And there is certainly a feeling I know on the private sector side that in many of these health cases, that goodwill is not necessarily there. And it may be because of issues at a local level, it may be at a higher level, but there is this feeling that really people are coming in with an agenda to create deductions, to reduce the burden on the particular trust's budget, effectively, rather than coming in with an agenda of things aren't right here, we need to make them right, we need to fix them. And I think that's going to, kind of going back to that communication point as well, is that you know one of the things that comes out of the report is they do say that the private sector feels in a lot of these cases like it doesn't really understand what the agenda is, what the end point of these aggressive approaches to contract management are. And therefore, how you work out with somebody around a table who is really not engaging in the process. You know, we've talked about this before, I think around handback and expiry. And, you know, we did a a round table a while back where we had someone from the Institute for Collaborative Working who kind of made this point that people have to be engaged Mm. because there's not an awful lot you can do with someone who's not. Yeah, that's, I don't know, it's hard because is that a bug or is that a feature? of these contracts that they can end up in this place because like we said before it's less than one percent that end up there and even those ones i'm sure a minority of that minority so how much not how much time should be put on it but it's difficult like you say when it comes to the reputation of the industry if it is such a small group whilst the rest are ticking along and actually are operating under that goodwill and there's some really important changes. There was a lot of success during the pandemic in the way that PFIs operated. So that reputational aspect, you almost don't want to focus too much on that. Yeah, I think there are two issues there as well, though. You know, first of all, I think if you talk to the managers and the, again, in the private sector, the people who are having to look after these contracts, 
the problem that they face is that although these are a minority of contracts, they are taking up so much time and so much focus and resource that the ones that are doing well are being left behind. And then, of course, you've got the danger of some of those maybe not being maintained as perhaps as well as they should be because you're not focused on them. You're taking your eye off the ball there because you're so dragged into all this this work on these small number of projects. I think the other thing is, you know, talking to one private investor who was saying recently that they fear that the problem with this area where you've got these projects that are in dispute or in trouble and you've got a view of a public sector that is behaving in a way that is making life difficult to the point of making it almost impossible to manage these contracts is actually you know potentially putting off foreign investors in UK assets and not just buying portfolios of existing PFI contracts but actually of investing in new projects because although it's a tiny proportion of the whole of the UK infrastructure market the behaviors there there is a fear that those behaviors could become wider spread and that it could become more of a UK government policy if you like of approaching private sector investment in infrastructure yeah. which means that it's very difficult then to actually get money coming in especially at a time when again talking to investors they'll say that liquidity is not what it used to be that the rising inflation interest rates etc are now resulting in particularly institutional investors tightening what they are willing to spend and what they're able to spend even mm. so you know, there's a lot more here, I think, to consider than just the impact on the specific projects. But who should be making that point to, say, a department who, as we know, the PFI industry, there isn't one at the moment on a significant scale. So are they interested in hearing news about investors in future PPPs and stuff like that? It's a hard one to sell when they're wanting to if someone has wanted to take it in this aggressive direction, I don't think that is going to pull them out of it. It is, but there's plenty of areas in which the UK government wants private sector investment and they want it in there for the long term and they want institutional investors. There's no secret that the UK government has been really lobbying hard to get more insurance companies, pension funds invested in public infrastructure. Yeah, and just to further that, we also see that net zero is a big issue at the moment and we saw just before we recorded this podcast there was the operational PFI net zero report that came out which was all looking about how to try and take that advantage and include PFI projects in the broader net zero decarbonisation effort and everyone is going to have to do that the built environment makes up a massive proportion it's not the majority but it is a really really significant proportion of carbon emissions and so both sides will have to work together to be able to do that. And PFIs are not exempt from that. And it's actually an opportunity to work together and perhaps having that forward thinking alignment of interests could be the grounds that help forge a new relationship rather than focusing on expiring and going separate ways. It's actually a common cause and that could help foster that goodwill that can be quite elusive at times. Because the thing is that time is ticking on these projects and it's got to goodwill has to start somewhere. So I think the report is good as a marker to be able to say, we need to really think about how we deal with this. And let's use this as a springboard. 
but it would be interesting to see how both sides of the industry kind of receive it. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously we'll be doing plenty to find that out and to, to get views over the coming days and weeks. I think one area as well of the report that is of interest, kind of moving away from just the how it's managed day to day in projects that are bumping along okay or ones that are kind of having some trouble, but actually the ones that have reached a position of dispute. I think the recommendation for a PFI dispute resolution forum, I think, is quite a positive step. I think it's it, well, it is very similar to DLA's expiry in handback resolution council that was put in their project autumn report, but this would actually be wider than just about handback and expiry, but actually about you know any project that is heading towards dispute. I think what I particularly like about that is the idea of providing anonymized versions of the decisions that are made, which I think could be really useful. I think one of the criticisms we often hear from the industry or irritations really that we hear from the industry is around the fact that a case may happen and a project may be in dispute, some sort of settlement is arrived at, but that's it. No one knows kind of what, what happened and what went on there. And actually no one knows how they got to that point, how they got out of that situation. And there are so many of these contracts that are based on the same standards, you know, SLPC4 or whatever. So the underlying contracts for so many of these are pretty much the same. So presumably a lot of the results from these dispute resolution court cases probably would have similar and cross-contract benefits for everyone to look at and point at and say, well, actually, if we go down that road, this is where we're going to end up. How do we not get there? And also, maybe even we can implement the outcome of the result without having to go through the court. Yeah, totally. That kind of goes back to the accountability thing that I was saying earlier on. I think having those frameworks set up and those kind of stars to navigate to if you know like you said that this way out didn't work then for say for a public sector so that that method of going through dispute was ineffective then you wouldn't go down it and you'd help to try and create some kind of boundaries around it but as you said it requires on that anonymous idea because these can be commercially sensitive disputes and that idea of openness I think is quite central to trying to foster that goodwill again operating on a trust but verify model would help even if it's just in the reset to be able to see not just the conditions of the assets and the surveys which often come under scrutiny but like you say other people's experience and some kind of like say this this council i think could go a really really long way in helping to it wouldn't be able to do everything but it would show that it is possible to lay out a pathway forward, which both sides are happy with and both sides can interact with in their own way. So I think that would definitely be a good thing. And it's something every side is called for and would broadly accept in the report. Yeah, certainly. I think that issue around commercial sensitivity, I mean, it's caused plenty of irritation over the years, I guess, for many people, journalists included, because you don't get to see the full details of a deal. So yeah, having that anonymized version of decisions opens that up a little bit so that you get some kind of clarity around that. I think it's quite interesting as well at the time, although this report isn't focused specifically on handback, but this idea of getting rid of commercial sensitivities to an extent, in in fact, or getting around them is quite relevant to to the handback stuff because, again, speaking to a few people, as more and more handbacks are happening and more and more contracts are heading towards expiry, 
although we've been to plenty of forums and written plenty about the importance of handbreadth the need to collaborate, all this kind of stuff, most people actually, when if they've got an idea of how they're going to go through their handbreadth process, they don't necessarily want to share that because it's, I guess it's commercially sensitive, isn't it? Mm. So, yeah. So having some kind of forum that allows people to talk anonymously or to, to see anonymous, anonymously what has gone on in this context, I think is, is quite important and useful. Yeah. I think one other area that the report picks up on from the DLA report from last year is that question about a code of conduct, which was quite central to, to what DLA had, had put forward. And it actually, the White Fraser report rejects this idea of a, a code of conduct, which actually makes sense, I think, because they recognise that it's not necessarily going to have any teeth and that this idea of getting parties to sign up to a code of conduct hasn't really had any effect or worked effectively in the past. Mm. So in that sense, I think there's a kind of realistic understanding of the, the limitations within which this report has to work and operate. I think it does recommend more reliance on the seven principles of public life, which are also known as the Nolan principles. But I mean, how much of an impact they have really, you know, they've obviously they've been around for years and we're still in this situation today. It's not like people have been taking note of those particularly. No, yeah. And you can see that most of the time people don't even need to mention these kind of reports. They're for quite specific cases where it seems like it's deliberately contravened. So some kind of guidelines of principles probably would be ignored as well in those cases. But I think the idea of them and, and the fact that the industry called for those is a good sign anyway towards the idea of goodwill coming into effect, that people are interested in trying to make a success out of this and will naturally embody those principles because they're invested in it and people want to enjoy working in this sector and also to make these projects which are at the heart of the communities a success and I think keeping that in mind and keeping that in the picture is important because it is easy to just for make PFI some financial asset that is being managed far away from what it actually is and there is some mention of that trying for the private sector to not see them as a financial asset to see them as an industrial asset and to be more involved in the day-to-day -day management and the approaches that can change viewing it that way so you know the humanization of pfi interaction i think is a really important step to take and maybe it won't come in a code of conduct but it's very clear from this report that that is central to it it is the personal approaches that people take to these projects and the personal interactions between the public and private sector side. And we see, as I said a number of times, most of this does happen properly and in a good way. Yes, and I think that's that's great for the 99% the effectively. I think it is the issue. It comes back to that 1%. And I, this report, I don't think, really suggests anything powerful enough to suddenly require a change of approach from those who are already approaching PFI with bad will, if you like, public or private sector side. If you're going into this or running one of these contracts in a way that is not conducive to the, the best outcome for the asset and for the ultimate users, then I don't think there's anything in this report that is going to make a significant difference around creating a body that has power to 
to force or enforce certain contractual arrangements. And yeah. I think, you know, you're still going to end up with those contracts in dispute going down a, a dispute resolution process. Yeah, you know, as I say, potentially this resolution for dispute resolution forum would be more effective as a way of dealing with, with the issues and may, if it's providing anonymized reports on what's going on, then may help to re- reduce the risk of others going down that route yeah. because people can see what the outcomes are. But yeah, I think overall, there's not an awful lot of ability really to change behaviors coming out of this report, which I guess perhaps we shouldn't have expected anyway, because that's probably without or outside the remit of A, the report and B, the capabilities of, or at least the abilities in terms of the political abilities of the IPA or others. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks very much for that, Jonathan. Really good to dig into that one report. And uh, I'm sure we will have plenty more coming through on this report, both in terms of articles on the website and I'm sure it'll come up again in more podcasts in the future. Yeah, I'm sure it will. And we uh, leave wishing goodwill to everyone. 